This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 30 years ago, the Grand Canyon had a problem, too much water. Now there's not enough. There's a sense of urgency there in trying to understand what is happening. On today's show, we explore the impact of climate change on the Colorado River's most iconic stretch. Plus, we learn how an upcoming trial reflects a change in how Colorado regulates the oil and gas industry. And we hear what to look for during this week's Perseid meteor shower. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. For years, Colorado's top energy regulator has been criticized by environmentalists for being too soft on oil and gas companies. But recently, the state's Oil and Gas Conservation Commission has been trying to change that narrative. It's part of the Polis administration's broader push to protect public safety and the environment and be more responsive to climate change. This week, we'll get to see one example of that at a trial involving a Weld County company behind dozens of alleged oil spills and gas leaks. It's set to get underway at the commission on Tuesday. KUNC's Matt Bloom covers the oil and gas industry for us, and he's here now to give us the details. Hey, Matt. Hey, Henry. Can you lay out who the players are in this trial and what's going on? The trial is addressing a local oil company, KP Kaufman, which has been around in the state for more than 30 years. Since 2015, they've racked up dozens of alleged violations of state rules. They include oil spills, gas leaks, and other safety issues at a lot of their northern Colorado sites. The state has uh, obviously taken notice and brought the issue to a trial in front of all the oil and gas commissioners who will hear evidence this week around eight of those specific violations that are the most serious. Ultimately, the commission will vote on whether to impose more than $3 million in fines on the company. And in the most extreme outcome, they could even revoke KP Kaufman's license to drill and extract oil in Colorado. But it's still too soon to say exactly what's going to happen because the trial obviously hasn't started. And it's just unusual for a case with this many violations to go in front of the COGCC. Well, it sounds like some of these allegations are pretty serious. What sort of impacts have we seen in the community? Farmers say some of the spills have damaged their crops. Um, In the town of Frederick, a spill last summer covered a major roadway in front of the local high school. Crews had to close the road in order to clean it up. Jennifer Simmons is a planner with the town. She told me that there aren't many ongoing issues with the spill, thankfully, but it's still concerning. I've been here 16 years. I've only seen two instances where oil came to the surface. So it is not common at all. In a couple other incidents, either farmers or residents discovered cut flow lines leaking gas. Remember in 2017, a leaking pipeline was the cause of a major home explosion in the town of Firestone that killed two people and injured several others. The state calls the KP Kaufman violations some of the most serious that it's seen to date, which is why they're moving forward with this trial. Well, I know that Colorado lawmakers passed Senate Bill 181 back in 2019. This was historic legislation aimed to toughen regulation of the oil and gas industry. What influence does that have in this trial? It's a big influence. 181 created an entirely new professional commission that Governor Polis appointed last year. 
it's been a major shift from the all-volunteer commission that's been regulating the industry in Colorado for decades. So now for the first time, we have a full-time staff of commissioners who are looking at companies like KP Kaufman and how they're operating in the state. One of the first things that they did was was change the entire mission statement of the COGCC from fostering the industry's growth to protecting public health, safety, and the environment. So I expect to see way more enforcement proceedings like this one going on in front of the full commission. It's also important to mention that the COGCC has always been in charge of enforcing penalties and fines like this, but now they're just more tools in its tool belt, so to speak. What has the company, KP Kaufman, said about some of these allegations coming from the state? I reached out to their team and they declined to speak with me, but they did share a statement that says KP Kaufman will, quote, vigorously defend itself against the COGCC's alleged violations. The company takes its responsibilities as an oil and gas operator very seriously and is committed to protecting public health, safety, welfare, and the environment. The company says it's working to repair all the facilities that the state has concerns with, and both the company and the state say there are no active spills, to their knowledge. What will the next couple of days look like? Well, we're expecting to hear arguments from both the state and the company around each of these eight violations, as well as witness testimony from some of the people impacted by them. The goal is to have a ruling by the end of the week, but that could be delayed if commissioners need more time to examine the evidence. The trial is going to be all virtual, too, so hopefully things will run smoothly without any Zoom glitches. KUNC's Matt Bloom, thanks for uh, covering this. Thanks for having me. Colorado's night skies will be full of shooting stars for the next week. The phenomenon is part of the annual Perseid meteor shower. KUNC's science reporting fellow Ashley Picconi is here with us now to explain what's going on and what to look for. Hey, Ashley. Hi, Erin. I know meteors, despite being called shooting stars, these are not actually stars. What is going on up in the sky during a meteor shower? Meteor showers happen when the Earth passes through dust and rock in space. Most of the time, those particles burn up as they speed through our atmosphere. They get so hot on the descent that they glow. So that's actually what we are seeing. I talked with John Keller, the director of the Fisk Planetarium at the University of Colorado Boulder. He said the meteors are pretty close to us, only 50 or 100 miles above our heads, but they're usually super small. And so even though these streaks look really bright, they're actually, they're really grains of dust size. They're grains of sand sized. There can be larger chunks that are, you know, pebble size or marble size or gravel size, but it doesn't take a whole bunch of mass going that fast to make a really bright light. And what's really interesting is that there's a bunch of different terms for these rocks depending on where they are. The meteoroid is something that is going to smash into the Earth. As as it's coming towards the Earth, it's called a meteor, and if it lands, it's a meteorite. And so they all have meteor in them, but meteoroids, meteors, and meteorites are the three phases of almost hitting the atmosphere, hitting the atmosphere, and then making it through the atmosphere. So how does that dust and rock get out there in the first place? There are multiple ways. So asteroids can collide together in the asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. When that happens, they can shoot chunks of rock towards Earth, but that usually only results in one or a couple of meteors. 
When we're talking about a full-blown meteor shower, Keller said the Earth is passing through debris from a comet. During the Perseids, it's Comet Swift-Tuttle. You're going to have literally like 60 of these coming through the atmosphere every hour because there's a lot of dust that was left over by that comet. Comets are basically like big, dirty snowballs. They're on really long orbits, and they only come close to the sun every few hundred years. But they are basically losing and leaving behind trails of material. When it is in the proximity of the inner solar system, that's when it heats up because it's closest to the sun. That heat sublimates the ice and releases both ice and dust. The ice goes away as gas, but the dust remains. And that dust actually follows the same orbital trajectory. It actually continues going around in space. So the dust keeps orbiting around the sun in the same path as the comet, even after it gets pulled off of the comet. And Swift-Tuttle has been orbiting the sun for millions of years. That means there's always material for us to run into in August when the Earth intersects the orbiting dust. Now, sometimes there's more or less dust than usual, and that's why the strength of the meteor shower can change each year. Well, I'm curious, though, if the comet's name is Swift-Tuttle, why do we call this the Perseid meteor shower? I asked Keller the same thing. They're called the Perseids because uh, actually every meteor shower is named off of the constellation where it looks like the meteors are coming from. Um, This is called the Radiant. And so in the case of the Perseids, the radiant is the constellation of Perseus. He said it's similar to driving at night during a blizzard. When you do that, it kind of seems like all the snow is smashing into you. The earth is the car. The atmosphere is the windshield. We're driving our atmosphere with the windshield into us into a snowstorm, which is the dust that we're going to impact. And it all looks like it's coming from the direction we're traveling. So because the Earth is moving towards the constellation of Perseus when we run into the comet debris, it looks like all the meteors are coming from there. So how do we get the best views of this meteor shower? The Perseids last for a long time, so that's really good for viewing, (laughs) from mid-July to late August. But the peak is in the night of August 11th and the morning of August 12th. If possible, Keller said you want to get somewhere that's really dark, and this year the moon is actually on our side. We're really lucky this year in that the moon is actually going to be a waxing crescent, which means it'll be just past being a new moon. It's only going to be 13% illuminated, um, you know, so not super bright in the sky. And it's also going to set very early. There will be a lot of meteors all night long, but Keller said the most will come in the morning hours after midnight. He recommends laying on your back and just trying to see as much of the sky as possible. Well, I may have to do that, and I'm also going to set an alarm because I don't want to miss it this year. Ashley, thanks so much for being here and uh, explaining all of this. You're welcome. Ashley Picconi is KUNC's Science Reporting Fellow. You'll find more information on this year's Perseid Meteor Showers at KUNC.org. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Colorado River is grappling with shortages this year, but it was a very different story nearly 30 years ago. High water flows coming through a dam just upstream of the Grand Canyon were ripping it apart. Inside Climate News reporter Judy Fays rode down the canyon then as part of a floating press tour. She recently revisited the canyon and found that the park is facing water challenges of a different kind now. Riding a rubber raft down the boisterous Colorado River rapids made the floating press conference fun. 
But fast-moving water from the Glen Canyon Dam was actually the problem back then. Water shooting through the turbines was wrecking the river environment. What we're trying to do is to figure out how do the operations of the dam impact this? Are there thresholds in dam operation where we tend to accelerate erosion of these beaches? And are there thresholds where we might tend to start to rebuild some of these beaches? Dave Wegner led scientific studies of the dam's impacts for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation back in 1990. Longtime NPR reporter Howard Burkus was on that trip too, and he gathered this audio. What's happening now is we're seeing the water come up. A stick planted in the sand on the river's edge during lunchtime showed how radically the river rose and fell, two feet in an hour, up to 13 in a day. Underwater. The stick is underwater. Wigner was illustrating what happened every time dam operators released extra water through the hydroelectric turbines. We're releasing more water at Glen Canyon Dam in response to electrical demand in the power grid. The water blasts were chewing up the sandy beaches that rafters used. They upended wildlife habitat and aquatic life. And the frigid fluctuations put endangered species at risk, like the humpback chub, which is a fish that likes warm water. New laws and policies followed the floating press conference in 1990. Scientific research prompted federal agencies to operate the dam with the environment in mind. Humpback chub are on the rebound. Camping beaches are rebuilding. We can see what effect those changes over a couple of decades have been having and how the ecosystem is responding. Scott Vanderkoy of the U.S. Geological Survey oversees Grand Canyon Science Now. He says studying the Colorado River's most iconic reach is still important after two decades of drought and climate change. There's a sense of urgency there in trying to understand what is happening and how quickly and how much things will change. The reason for continuing the research became clear this spring. I returned to the Grand Canyon to see how it's facing the problem of too little water. Springs weren't gushing the way they used to. Cactuses were shriveling. You're pointing at the cactus. Yeah, you know you're dealing with a drought when you're seeing desert plants falling over for lack of water. USGS researcher Helen Fairley was documenting changes in beaches and vegetation this spring when I ran into her in the canyon. She's been doing field work in the Grand Canyon for decades. And like me, she found it odd how bighorn sheep were flocking to the riverbanks in spring. Generally, they don't come down until uh, late summer, fall, when the water sources up high dry out. I told her how a bighorn had glared down at our camp from a rocky ridge one night, as if we'd elbowed its hungry family away from the dinner buffet. Well, this year, apparently, they don't have water up high, and that's why we're getting so many sheep down along the river at this time of year, which is really unusual. Water became a preoccupation for us, too. It was hotter and drier than usual, and our five-gallon water jugs ran out surprisingly fast. We spent lots of time planning how to refill them. A few times we pumped river water so we'd have something to drink. About 40 million people rely on Colorado River water. Flows have been declining over two decades, and climate change is speeding up evaporation. The river is more than just a water supply for the region's cities and farms. Researcher Helen Fairley says we should remember it supports ecosystems, too. Future policy ought to reflect that. Hopefully, there's ways to do it smartly and strategically that won't create additional environmental devastation in the process. Thirty years ago, Lake Powell, just upstream of the canyon, was full. Now, it's two-thirds empty. And what the people who rely on the Colorado River are realizing is that too much water 
is an easier problem to solve than too little. I'm Judy Faze. That story was produced from recordings made by retired NPR reporter Howard Berkus. It's a part of ongoing coverage of Water in the West in collaboration with Inside Climate News. The number of people trying to summit a Colorado peak above 14,000 feet, or a 14er, has surged in recent years. The increased hiker traffic is partly a result of the pandemic, which pushed a lot of people outdoors and onto those hiking trails. But what's good for people can be bad for sensitive alpine ecosystems. And that's why the Colorado 14ers Initiative is stepping up efforts to mitigate the impacts of these growing hordes of hikers. Jennifer Brown has just written about this for the Colorado Sun, and she is with us now. Jen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Erin. So hiker traffic to these peaks increased a lot in recent years. In 2020, you write that roughly 415,000 hikers climbed a 14er. That's a 44% increase from the year before and almost 20% more than in 2018. What is it that draws people to these peaks, first of all? What's happening here in part, of course, you know, during the pandemic, the only place to really go for recreation was outdoors. And people just have this idea more than ever before that 14ers are, you know, accessible to almost everyone. And back in the day, you know, when these started getting to be popular hikes in the 90s, we were talking about mountain climbers, mountaineer type people. Um, Now we're talking about, you know, sometimes people that only pack a t-shirt and a pair of chacos and they don't even have real hiking boots on. And you know, on one hand, it's great. Coloradans love their outdoors, especially new people that move. You know, a lot of people moving here are in their 20s and 30s and just want to get outside. But there's also, you know, what they call like the Instagram phenomenon, like people want that photo. And they can also quickly pull up an app. You know, you don't need a guidebook anymore. You can pull up a 14er app or all trails and, you know, it leads you right to the trailhead and off you go. So it is in some ways a little worrisome, like the people who are out there who are unprepared. And there's also an impact on the mountains and their ecosystems, especially in areas where there aren't dedicated trails to get to the summit. Can you talk about that? You know, one of the startling things I learned working on this story um, and going out with a crew to Mount Elbert near Leadville is that some of those alpine plants, you know, though they can survive way up there at 13,000, 14,000 feet, what they can't survive is footsteps. And between five and 10 footsteps will crush them dead. And, you know, that set them back, you know, the last five or 10 years of them growing. And it sounds like for many of these 14ers, and maybe this is a product of not many people doing them in the past, but they really don't have a set trail sometimes. Exactly. So like I said, these started getting to be really popular hikes in the mid-90s. And at the time, out of 58 14ers in Colorado, there were just two in the mid-90s that actually had a planned trail. And so for one thing, you have all these little braids of different trail going up the top of the mountain. And for another, these are too steep in terms of erosion. You know, it's not good to create these trails where all the moisture from the mountain, all the runoff comes flowing down. It creates, you know, a trail of mud, basically, which makes people then step off the trail and walk on the plants. But it also is just bad for the ecology to have that amount of 
run off rushing down these very steep trails. This is where the Colorado 14ers initiative comes in. What is this group about? Who are they and what do they do? So they are really cool. They started in the mid-90s, 1994, at this time when the Forest Service and several nonprofits were like, there are a lot of people just climbing these mountains. Like, we need to have a better plan for these trails. So they operate now, this has come up a lot in recent years, they operate on a budget of about $1.5 a year. There's a little bit of Forest Service money. There's a lot of grants and a lot of individual donations, you know, people that really just love their Colorado mountains and they're willing to give some money. So this group, you know, they hire 20 or so seasonal workers. They have a few people on staff all year, but their seasonal workers are stationed at their projects each season, which lasts about four months. So this summer they've got people at Mount Elbert, Mount Wilson, which is near Telluride, um, Grays and Tories, which are very popular peaks right next to each other um, off of I-70, and some people down in like the Lake City area where there's several 14ers. And basically they just take, you know, small sections of trail at a time, but they're really focused on fixing these steep sections of trail that cause a lot of runoff. And the other thing they've done in recent years is learned how to count accurately how many people are climbing these things. And the way they do that is really cool. I watched them um, collect data out of a thermal camera that's hidden in a tree on Mount Albert. So they could tell you that 25,000 people last year hiked Mount Albert. And then they're able to show that data and show very specifically, you know, what work the trail needs. And they use that in their fundraising efforts so that they can make these trails more sustainable long-term. Now, what is this work like? You got to go up with a group who, uh, it sounds like they live at a base camp for a week or so. What are they doing and, and why do they do it? These are some really hardy folks, Erin. Like, I don't think I would last in their jobs. It was fun for a day, but, you know, they hike up there every day for eight days straight then they get six days off and for those eight days they live in a base camp which is still around 10,500 feet it's a wall tent surrounded by a solar-powered electric fence to keep bears and marmots and etc any critters who want to come in and eat their food while they're out building trail all day um, and they wake up at like 3.30 in the morning and they hike up to, you know, 13,000 feet or 11.5 and they work on trail all day, basically just using like an electric chainsaw, some axes, uh, shovels, and they're, you know, they're working in high wind and cold temperatures, even in July. And, but, you know, these people love it. They want to be outside. And a few of them told me, you know, I want to work in the alpine like what other job can you have where you can work above tree line every day enjoying that scenery you mentioned some grants and donations i'm wondering what other ways the colorado 14ers initiative gets funding because it sounds like although they have some volunteers they also pay people to do this work they're getting about a million dollars over four years from the american outdoors act which was passed by congress last year pushed through by our former Senator Cory Gardner. And they're gonna use that money for several different projects, including on uh, Mount Shavano outside of Salida, which has got a really awful like uphill erosion type trail. So that's good. They're getting a little bit more money from Congress to, uh, to do some more work in Colorado. And then in terms of funding, I thought it was really interesting. The 
the executive director of the 14 years initiative kind of described how you've got these really ambitious folks who, you know, maybe it's their thing. They're going to climb all 58 14 years in Colorado and they're very ambitious driven people. And what he's realized is that ambition and that drive really relates to the rest of their lives. So a lot of them are very successful in their careers and maybe very wealthy. So if he can get in front of them and use their love of the mountains in Colorado to try to help pitch in some money to make the trails more sustainable. You know, he has a good track record of doing that. Jennifer Brown with the Colorado Sun. You will find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Jen, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me, Erin. That's our show for today. The pandemic forced many artists to stop performing and touring, but for some, the past year and a half has given them time to think about how to make their work safer and more equitable. We'll hear more about what this might look like tomorrow on Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.